Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Edion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim, and hello, Ufahamu Africa listeners. This week, in honor of International Women's Day, we're excited to feature our first non-resident fellow episode by Wanjuku Nungungi, focusing on sexual and reproductive health and rights, or SRHR. Wanjiku speaks with lawyer and feminist activist Narima Were, who is an LLB and LLM graduate from the University of Pretoria and currently a tutorial fellow at the University of Nairobi, where she is pursuing a PhD. She worked as a researcher at the Constitutional Court and the Land Claims Court, both in South Africa. In 2014, she joined Callan as a volunteer, becoming a pro bono lawyer within the organization. And a shout out to the Washington Mandela Fellows Program in 2018, Nerima was a Mandela Washington Fellow in the area of civic leadership at UVA and College of William and Mary. Yes, and our non-resident fellow, Wanjiko Ngugi, or Kate, as Nerima sometimes calls her in their conversation, spoke to Nerima about SRHR, but also about feminism more broadly and about capitalism, colonialism, and more. I really appreciated in particular how she provides some historical context and some of her responses to Wanchika's questions, talking about, for example, Kenya's 2010 constitution and what it does and does not provide for when it comes to women's rights. And in honor of Women's History Month, I love that there's a shout out to Wangari Matai and their conversation and how we should remember Matai's historic contributions to women's rights in Kenya and in, in Africa more broadly, beyond you know her um, her of course you know really important actions to preserve the environment. That's right, Kim. It's a good reminder, an important one today and always. Now, Kim, in the spirit of International Women's Day, I also want to mention uh, some protests going on in Nigeria. Really interesting uh, in terms of the the gender focus of this civil society mobilization. Uh, A large number of protesters have been out in the streets in front of the parliament, and what they're reacting to is the legislature's rejection of five bills that were proposed that would have expanded women's rights in the country. The bills introduced a number of different elements, including gender quotas in the legislature, and in the leadership of political parties. So really significant to see, first of all, surprising in some ways to see that rejection when um, gender quotas are are, um, significant in a number of other countries. And, um, And then the civil society mobilization in the wake. Yeah, and they're really quite necessary because Nigeria actually has one of the lowest proportions of women in its parliament. So also not surprising that it would then get rejected because, of course, a lot of men would be losing their seats, I imagine. And they're, um, you know, that's the thing, you know, Um, and and there's some there's some great little tidbits about in this in this interview that Wanjiku has with Nuri Mawere kind of talking about, you know, the men that are in power and um, the women who are trying to uh, get the rights, you know, just to be on equal footing with with the men um, in their countries. Um, now, I, you know, just again, like women's, you know, International Women's Day, Women's History Month, thinking about gender. Um, and, you know, hearing this conversation between Narima and uh, Wanjiku, you know, it's at the same time, I'm listening to a lot of conversations about Africans in Ukraine. Right. So we're we're seeing this aggression um, by Russia into Ukraine. And, um, you know, now that Ukraine is is um, is in is in war, people are trying to flee and not just Ukrainians. Right. But nationals of other countries, um, you know, people from India, many of them students, um, people from 
from other countries, but also including um, people from African countries. And we're hearing a lot of mixed reports about um, Africans in Ukraine. And I wanted to talk to you about that. And I bring this back to gender because, you know, I've heard different things. So I've been listening. I listened to the Africa Today podcast on the BBC. And, you know, one day, you know, they spoke to some African students who had left Ukraine for Poland and they talked about their harrowing journey and how long it took. And um, they were all men that the BBC interviewed. And when they, when the BBC followed up and said, well, is this because you're African that it took you so long? Or is it because you're men? And it was interesting. They said, oh, yeah, you know, they let the women go through because it was all women and children first. Right. But that. I mean, that's not really squaring with everything else I've heard. You know, of course, there was a CNN producer whose um, sister is, you know, originally from Sierra Leone, who was also trying to leave Ukraine, and it was very difficult for her. And, you know, they pointed to race and national origin as being, you know, a primary factor that was keeping her. And I'm just wondering, Rachel, you know, I know in your position as the director of the Inaudi Center at Cornell, you know, you, I'm sure, even though, um, you know, Ukraine is not your regional expertise that you, of course, are, are um, seeing a lot of what's happening in it. And I'm sure also following the Africans in Ukraine um, story. Absolutely, Kim. One of the interesting things I just want to point to of, of the many things that I've been seeing around this um, topic is on, you know, related to our migrations initiative here at Cornell um, is about the way in which the narratives of who's being accepted mm-hmm, across which mm-hmm. borders, of course, you know, is is shows so much kind of hypocrisy and double standards, right? And there's been for a long time a kind of stark distinction between European countries' apparent willingness to accept fleeing Ukrainians um, with kind of bro- decades, even longer histories of their obstruction and willingness to accept refugees coming from Middle East, from Africa, and the like. So just on the broad you know, terms, this is a very different reaction to neighboring countries. Um, and what that underscores on one hand, and this is um, based on some work uh, that Rana Khoury has been doing, is mm-hmm. that, of course, the Global South hosts refugees from neighboring countries in conflict all the time. The vast majority of refugees are in the Global South, right? And so when we look at the question of capacity to host, or do we have the ability to let X number in, and who are they? In relative terms, no one has the capacity to host, right, to some degree. And yet... uh, and yet they do, right? So when we look, uh, you know, in, in neighborhoods that we're um, familiar with, if we look at um, hosting agreements in U- Uganda, in Kenya, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. These vary dramatically in the extent to which countries are willing hosts and the types of rights and resources they provide, but yet they are hosts nonetheless. And so, you know, I think it just underscores the idea that um the, the narrative that the global north can't handle refugees, that they lack capacity, that refugees are burdensome security risks, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And so uh, when we think about people's ability to seek safety and, and safe harbor, no matter who they are and where they're coming from, this is just a principle that underscores this, the intensity and the importance of this moment. Yeah, and we're seeing the racism out loud in, um, in this, you know, like, like you said, we want people to, 
to be able to reach safety and safe harbor, um, we're just pointing out the inconsistencies with how this has happened in the past. And it's reminding me, of course, of our interview, um, our conversation, our roundtable conversation, our mashup episode with the Migrations Podcast, when we featured Najla Nyabala. And she pointed out, you know, um, what has been happening with Africans trying to cross the Mediterranean for years, right? And, and, and you know, if folks follow her on Twitter, you can see how, you know, she's drawing these connections to, you know, what's happening with Ukrainians fleeing, um, you know, for very good reason, fleeing war, um, and how they're being treated, you know, differently than Africans who have been trying to seek um, refuge and safe harbor. Um, so yeah, it's, um, on a brighter note, let's, let's, let's end this. You know, we want to, we want to get through the news wrap quickly this week because of this great wide ranging conversation between Wanjiku and Narima. But, um, so, so let's just share one more thing. And the last thing I wanted to share with our listeners is something that we actually saw in foreign policies, Africa brief, and this is about Malawian musician Giddish Chalamanda. Um, now, this 92-year-old is now this TikTok megastar, thanks to his song, Lenny Who, um, an ode to his daughter about doing household chores. Uh, it's garnered 7.7 million views on YouTube. And um, this was something that was posted late last year to TikTok, where it racked up more than 80 million views. Um, and I, I think it is important to point out that Chalamanda has not been able to monetize his fame or get any revenue um, from the TikTok views that he's amassed. So, and, and I do want to kind of follow up on that, you know, what does it mean to create something, you know, when you're a person with um, very little means and not, not able to access some of this monetization, especially kind of hearing Wanjiku speak in her, um, in her conversation with Narima about planning an episode later about art and activism. And given what their conversation, you know, touches on issues about capitalism and gender and, and, um, and so thinking about this particular song and, and, and what Chalamanda is trying to do with it and, um, and what he's able to get out of it, which, you know, um, while others are profiting from what he's doing, um, anyways, which is to say their conversation has inspired me to think about a lot of different things. Um, and, and I hope it will for our listeners too. Awesome, Kim. Thanks so much. Now let's listen to Wanjiku and Narima. Welcome to this week's episode of Ufahamu Africa. My name is Wanji Konguge. Now, as you are aware, on March 8th of, of this year, we're going to be celebrating International Women's Day, which is a day where we come together to observe and appreciate the efforts of gender rights advocates and feminists um, who have worked tirelessly to advance the rights of women in social, political, economical, and I dare say cultural fronts. And we cannot have a conversation about the empowerment of women without talking about health rights and specifically reproductive health and rights, which are the capital that women use to navigate and negotiate in different spaces and phases of their lives. Today, we have Nerima Ware, the Deputy Executive Director at Kellen, helping us talk through this conversation. Thank you, Nerima Ware, and um, feel very welcome to Fahamu Africa. Thank you, Kate. As we start out, uh, maybe you can just give us um, a brief of yourself, the work that you do in health rights advocacy, and uh, some of the approaches that you use at Kellen. Kindly also introduce Kellen. Okay, thanks. Um, 
Good morning, everyone, and thanks, Kate. Um, my name is Nerima Were. As Kate has said, I am an advocate, uh, a human rights lawyer, a feminist, a pan-Africanist, socialist. I have many ists that I subscribe to. Um, a little bit more about the work that we do. So Kellen is the Kenya Legal and Ethical Issues Network on HIV and AIDS. It's a health and human rights non-governmental organization based in Kenya. We started in 1994, focusing on the legal and ethical issues arising with HIV and the HIV epidemic. But we've since grown to focus more widely on health rights. Since the 2010 constitution was passed, it gave us the opportunity to advance the right to health globally, considering the many different populations. So we entered into the sexual and reproductive health and rights space. Allow me to use SRHR going forward. Um, through an intersectional case on foster and co-asterialization of women living with HIV. And this was a practice that was ongoing in Kenya in the late 90s, early 2000s. And not just Kenya, actually in quite a few countries across the continent and the world in the late 90s and early 2000s where women who were living with HIV, who had become pregnant, were forced to undergo sterilization because it was believed at the time there was no effective method to prevent them from transmitting the virus to the child and that they should no longer get pregnant. So that's how we entered into the SRHR space. And it's then grown to a number of different areas, considering access to safe and legal abortion, access to maternity services beyond the forcing cross-realization cases, just maternity services, maternal health care, taking care of women and girls, ensuring, I mean, looking at questions of sexual and gender-based violence, um, ensuring laws and policies afford women equal opportunity when it comes to their health, and also to some extent with men, because SRHR aren't limited to women. Um, thank you very much for that, Nerima. Um, I'm also very proud to say that I'm affiliated with Kellen, and I've learned a lot just by associating with Nerima. Um, also, could you just tell us a bit more about um, what sexual reproductive health rights are, um, what is the current landscape, mm -hmm. and um, why did you choose to work in this field specifically? Right, so it's normally not an easy question to answer, but I'll do my best. So it's actually four things you're looking at when you say sexual and reproductive health and rights. So you're looking at sexual health, reproductive health, reproductive rights, and sexual rights. And when you look at sexual health, it's the ability to control your sexuality and be free from violence. So that's when we discuss things like sexual and gender-based violence and being free from coerced sex and having a safe and satisfying sex life. Uh, reproductive health is the right to choose. No, reproductive health is being able to have access to the services to ensure that you can enter into the reproductive safe spacely. Um, if you choose to have children, that you can do so safely and that you can continue to manage your reproductive health um, from a number of different angles throughout your entire reproductive cycle. Considering for women, it's from around 15 to 49 or even younger, mostly younger. Yeah. And for men, it's younger, but mostly from the teenage years up until much older than women, mm -hmm. but still being able to guarantee that if you wanted to exercise the right to have, to reproduce, you would have the capacity to do so because your health was taken care of. The rights, on the other hand, um, for sexual rights, the right to have a safe and satisfying sex life, which then means 
free from violence, free from coercion, being able to choose your partner, think through forced marriage, um, forced marriage, sexual violence, also being able to choose your partner, being that your partner might not necessarily, necessarily be somebody of the opposite sex, but you do have a right to choose that partner yeah. and do so safely and without any violence. And then reproductive rights are the right to choose if and when, if being a key thing. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is obliged to have children. They may not want to, they may not have the capacity to, or the means to. So if and when to have children, the number of those children and the spacing of those children. So you're really looking at four different things that then require both a rights framework and then the infrastructure and health to ensure that rights framework can be realized. Yeah. Um, could you speak um, briefly about maybe the laws relating to um, reproductive rights? Okay. Yeah. And sexual rights as well. So our starting point is the constitution of Kenya, 2010, yeah. which is always our starting point for everything, which is a good thing. But there are a number of rights within the Bill of Rights that actually speak to reproductive health and to sexual health and sexual rights. So the reproductive health is actually very explicit within the Constitution based on our history as a country and the issues that we've had in the past when it comes to how particularly women are treated for either being of reproductive age or for seeking to reproduce. So the right to reproductive health is guaranteed in Article 43 1A Mm -hmm. as part of the right to health. Um, Pregnancy or pregnancy status is a prohibited ground for non-discrimination. So if you're discriminated against because you're pregnant uh, in your workplace or in any other space, that would be a violation of your right to equality. Um, There's a right to human dignity. Uh, The right to healthcare generally speaks to that. Um, The right to access a safe abortion, which is under Article 26.4, which those is framed as an exception, it is an exception to a prohibition. So abortion is still not lawful. However, the Constitution recognizes that there are certain circumstances when one can exercise their right to an abortion, which is if um, the pregnant woman's life is in danger, the health mm-hmm. is in danger, or if it's necessary for emergency treatment, or in other instances, if it's provided for by any other law. And any other law would then be a national law or a county law because the health function is devolved to county government and abortion, like all maternity care, is a primary health care service, which then means the county governments would be responsible for providing it. So at present, we still don't have a reproductive health law at national level. However, we do have provisions for reproductive health at national level. So the Health Act, for instance, provides for free maternity care. Yeah. For all, under Section 5. Under Section 6, they speak about reproductive health and reproductive rights for men and women in the country and also reproductive health information. So there are provisions. We have a reproductive health policy at national level, a family planning policy, um, a national policy for the management of sexual violence, as well as an adolescent reproductive health policy and um a package of care. Yeah. 
So that's at national level. Mm-hmm. At county level, each of the counties have had an opportunity. A number of them have passed maternal new care, maternal newborn and child health bills, and some reproductive health services bills like Mombasa County, Makueni County, Kilifi County, Kisumu County, Kakamega County, among others. Um, yeah, I think that speaks to maybe some of the work that Kelly and other health rights organizations are doing in terms of advocating for the development of new policies. Uh, but it's, it also enunciates the fact that we do have the laws in Kenya and the challenge then comes in when it comes to the enforcement of these laws. Um, and that can be... Um, can be attributed to the fact that reproductive health and rights are a very um, sensitive subject or topic to talk about. And it does involve both men and women, whereas some of the uh, violations um, negatively affect only one gender, which is the women. And so as we speak about maybe pushing for um, better realization of these rights and the enjoyment of the right to reproductive health um, by women, what would you say is the impact and need for gender transformation in healthcare in general? Well, this is actually a global conversation and not just a Kenya problem. So there is a huge need for gender transformation in healthcare globally. Um, One being that women are often not even included in studies when it comes to healthcare services and healthcare products. So often things are made from the perspective, and not just women, women and children actually. So things are often made from the perspective of men and services are created from the perspective of men. And that then doesn't necessarily meet the standards necessary for women. And that is true also for law. Laws are also made from the lens of men and the experiences of men, and that that then that doesn't impact women in the same way and affects them and excludes them. So the need for gender transformation is more than just considering how many more women we have in parliament, because that's always been the push, or how many more girls you have in school, because that's always been the push. Like have more girls in schools, have more girls and more women in parliament. And I'm not saying those are worthy causes. However, if you don't essentially seek to transform the parliament, for one, yeah. or the schools that you want these girls to enter into and make, and there's still male spaces, you'll just have women trying to survive in another male space. And the same thing for healthcare, if you don't transform how healthcare services are provided from the products that are being developed yeah. to the services that are being given at a point of sale then it doesn't matter that they're available. They're not necessarily accessible for the specific gender that needs them. So we've seen a lot of efforts going into having maternal health care services provided for women from making it free by a number of governments, starting with Kibaki, free here and there. We'll discuss the free part. Yeah. From making it free to um, really having a drive. But we've seen our government make a similar effort when it comes to vaccines and the vaccine drive for children. And we have such a high vaccination rate, which means it's possible if the government has the necessary goodwill and political buy-in to push an intervention. It's just that they're not doing the same thing when it comes to maternal care. So, for instance, when you have free maternity care services and you're a woman living with HIV, which is good. Yeah. It's good that the services are available. Now, the concern would be, how are they available? If you go and at arrival, 
they say while in HIV already there's that stigma that comes with that moment yeah. and this can also happen to men granted however it happens disproportionately to women because most women find out about the HIV status when they're pregnant because it is part of the antenatal care and often they're tested without their consent and so now you have that burden of knowing this yep. and then having to go and explain at home why you now have HIV so it's the fact that you have to transform the system itself and not make it so male centric so it's not about having more female nurses more female doctors it's about looking at the system and how women interact with it yeah. and so it can transform that experience for them yeah thank you thank you for that nerima i do agree with um what you've just explained um it does help to have women been evo- been involved not only as their consumers but also as part and parcel of the process so are we having women involved in the budgetary process um as we allocate funds to healthcare are we having women um at at the stage where we're developing policies and different laws relating to not only reproductive health because again you also have to take into consideration the fact that um social social justice issues are intersectional uh which again drives me <laughs> to our next issue which will be um the fact that you're a very strong proponent of the fact that we need to develop or rather we should not develop single problem solutions our, our approaches and the solutions that we develop need to be multifaceted and this is because um as a as a feminist and as a person that has worked um in health rights advocacy you understand how various intersectional elements such as age race gender can have an influence on how various people are able to access rights and so um when we come to health rights um can we specifically go to issues of capitalism and nationalism what would you say is the linkage between specifically sexual reproductive health rights and capitalism and tell us a bit more about what you're doing as an individual because eventually in as much as we talk about um collective efforts to um advance rights we also play individual roles so yeah yeah kindly speak to that all right so <laughs> it's good that you mentioned that because when i said when i was mentioning all my ists at the beginning socialist yeah. was one of them we will explore all of them we'll hopefully all of them. Yeah. um so when it comes to srhr and capitalism it's really where because capitalism in its ability to commodify people yeah. and turn them into sources of capital Mm-hmm. or turn them into sources of resource and we see this from the history of capitalism so one of the countries that has benefited the most not by no means the only country that has benefited from capital but the most the united states and its history in commodifying human beings to build the nation yeah. so the slave trade um we see the same for um the other colonial countries Britain, Holland and how they moved into Africa specifically for resources and being able to then commodify resources to the extent that the human beings that existed around those resources needed to be enslaved to access these resources. So the need for commodification yeah of everything just to advance the growth of capital. And this is also true for women in capital and this is where SRHR comes in because women are often commodified in their ability to reproduce yeah. 
Yes. And mm. the ability to reproduce isn't soul. We don't reproduce by ourselves, but then we carry the burden of reproduction. We're the ones who actually carry the babies for the nine months yes. and give birth to them. So that ability to reproduce is both um, glorified and shamed within the same space in the sense that it's used to exclude us from spaces, but at the same time exploited to ensure we're creating more and more bodies for labor in future. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how are you excluded from the workplace? We see this very often, still a huge problem in the country, whereby you will, you might be, if you're not in a healthy work environment, you could lose your job simply for being pregnant. Mm-hmm. They'll never say that's why they're firing you, but that is why you will be dismissed. They'll find a different reason to dismiss you. Similarly, if you're of reproductive age, there's a limitation to how far you can go. So even when you're applying for positions, looking at your age, looking at what they require, they might be like, mm. yeah. if she's a potential to get pregnant at some point, no one wants to pay for that three months. Yes. And the mm-hmm. state doesn't pay for it either. And also, it's three months in Kenya. It's six weeks unpaid leave in the state. It's like one year in the Nordic countries. But every like the, the WHO will say, you need six months exclusive breastfeeding, yeah. but at the same time, your maternity leave is only three months. So I don't know what miracle you're supposed to, <laughs> what miracle is supposed to happen in those last three months, but the state isn't willing to invest more. Already your job is at risk just for being pregnant. Yeah, You don't want to take five months and risk even pushing yourself further away from your career. So it's exclusion from that space. And then in the other space, it's whereby try to be a woman without a child in today's world. Or in 10 years ago. Yeah. It's difficult. At some point, your value is linked by either your ability to have a husband, your ability to have a child. It doesn't matter what you do yeah. by yourself without these two things. So in that sense... The commodification of women's reproduction has been used to both exclude them from the political space and at the same time push them into creating more people for labor. Yes. Because obviously the labor market needs people. Yeah. So you need somebody to be giving birth to children. When you talk about the individual acts of dismantling capitalism, one of the big things that I do like to do is write. Mm -hmm. Um, and I try to find opportunities to write a bit more and find ways to link things to each other. So mm-hmm. like when I was discussing about reproductive health and commodification, it's actually part of an article I co-authored with my colleagues Linda Kruger and Tabitha Saoyo um, that was published by the Heinrich Paul Foundation under the series on challenging patriarchy. And so being able to write different things around it, um, finding different outlets. So one aspect is in academic writing, which I have tried to do in a number of different spaces on water, on healthcare, on just feminism. Another is on more creative artistic writing, so poetry. Another thing is really through engagement with like young feminists and being able to create safe spaces. So this is both in my personal life and in my work. So I really do want 
to have the type of workspace whereby if it's just like a little bit easier for mm-hmm. another woman or for another feminist then that's like a good thing that's like a huge change for me now we want to talk about the fights that um you experience on a daily basis while you advocate for sexually reproductive health rights um and you speak about subjects which again I will say very sensitive abortion access to safe and legal abortion um choice women choosing to either have or not have children and um there are a lot of people that are for this side and we we've seen it through maybe summit such as the Nairobi summit which was held recently but also being in the line of work where you're speaking about empowering women by giving them their health back um and allowing them to use it as their capital comes with a lot of um opposition from anti-feminist activist um anti-gender groups um what has been your experience with some of these groups and maybe you can speak about it as a collective because maybe you've not experienced it personally i wouldn't know <laughs> you'd shed light yeah. to that <laughs> um, um yeah mm-hmm. so the experiences of this group actually it goes back to what i was just saying on this perception of africa as a static and what africa should be and what african traditional values are yeah. and we hear this um not just when it comes to women and choice because it's normally mm, because with women and choice the only choice that's available and acceptable is to have the children mm-hmm. one choice just just have the children yeah. <laughs> and not do make it a story so that's why abortion is a huge issue because then the issue isn't reproduction per se because if it was about reproduction mm-hmm. then there would be more discussion about um there'll be more discussion about men's role in the yeah, reproductive yeah. process mm-hmm. and finding ways to give men the choice around mm-hmm. not reproducing because often because you're the one who carries it yeah then it's just a, a solo burden so the fact that somebody else was there present had to be like biologically impossible for them not to have been there yeah is something that's never discussed to the extent that realistically you can only have maybe one pregnancy a year. Mm. A man can probably impregnate 365 women in a year. Yeah. But we never actually discuss their role in reproduction because it's not really about reproduction, it's about controlling women. Mm. And in the same way with um sexual minorities, the prevailing prevailing narrative around them being an African mm-hmm. also very Euro, that's a very eurocentric notion and a very colonial notion that they're an african and an african and actually one of the speakers around this notes his name is professor charles and going to note what's an african yeah. is homophobia mm-hmm. like that you hate somebody for who they are that is more an african mm-hmm. than somebody opting to love somebody of the same sex So this is that static understanding of what africanness is mm-hmm. and the truth is that understanding is based on colonialism and colonial writings mm-hmm. there's very few writings about africans from the perspective of africans themselves mm-hmm. to there's very few writings about africa from the perspective of african women mm-hmm. so the first thing is one very few africans two 
very few women involved in writing about the continent. So our understanding of what Africanness is is very static mm-hmm. and based on a colonial notion. And this is basically what anti-gender groups have been using to advance their political objectives. ideology yeah. or objectives. Mm-hmm. It's that this is who we are, mm-hmm. the static view. Our culture doesn't change, and that's not true. Not, not only is it not realistic, it's very inaccurate, because that was the point of oral history. Yeah, was that we didn't we didn't have a static culture, so it was it required change consistently. So trying to document it in one simple way through writing mm-hmm. wasn't adequate for the types types of societies we had. So the holding onto this idea of what Africanness is. Coupled with mm-hmm. the growth of patriarchy and misogyny, now leading to a lot of movements and backlash against any advancement, either in law, policy, practice, mm-hmm. for the rights of women and their reproductive health, um, for the rights of sexual minorities. So you see a lot of these groups often funded by the West, sometimes not, but often funded by the West, advancing these agendas. And the different ways we've seen it happening is they've really tried to localize the opposition. Mm. So you have localized and also use existing legitimate mechanisms. So you have like the Christian, the Kenya Christian Professional Forum. You have somebody who, Charles Kanjama, who was the head of the Nairobi branch um, law society uh, chapter, Nairobi Nairobi chapter of the law society, you have doctors Mm -hmm. who will go and use their professional background as a doctor to go give testimony not grounded in evidence. Mm -hmm. So like Dr. Wahomengare engaging in a case to decriminalize same sex relations mm-hmm. and same sex relations same sex relations so the repeal 162k which is quite pop which was quite prominent in this country and if you read his testimony mm-hmm. it's not grounded in anything he's just saying he's saying that people who are homosexual were all were all victims of violence mm-hmm. as children but there's no evidence He's not supporting it with like any empirical evidence, right? Yeah. But then he's a doctor saying it. Mm-hmm. So how you're using your professional background to spread disinformation and misinformation around basic, around other populations. The same thing with um, access to abortion. We did have um, not just Charles Kanjama, but a doctor also saying that many of the women who access abortions... Mm-hmm have significant psychological trauma, nightmares, deep regret. Like, But there yeah. wasn't actually any women who testified to that within that case. Mm-hmm. It was just, this is what we see in our clinic. They didn't even share the clinical records. Mm-hmm. They didn't distinguish between safe and unsafe abortion. So just using your title, but using your title to advance misinformation and disinformation... The other thing is, they're very legitimate people. There are people in society who are looked up to. Mm-hmm. Your lawyers, your doctors, we know you, we trust you. And so being able to use that role to lie to people about something, basically. Another thing is just the growth of like different forums in different churches. So with um, 
so is the church of god yeah so being able to access social media spaces mm-hmm. right so it's yeah. no longer just that i come to church and you tell me these things you'll see so is the church of god very prominent in social media yeah. commenting on things yeah. like the entire church okay i'm sure the media yeah. <laughs> the media liaison but like commenting of things so just using all these innovative spaces to continue with this consistent narrative mm-hmm. and then having congresses and bringing in specific people like the second lady so Rachel Ruto being a prominent figure So they are tapping into prominent figures. They're tapping into trusted sources, mm-hmm. and they're using the sources to spread misinformation. They're affecting parliamentary processes. Yeah, they'll label a bill an abortion bill when it has a variety of okay. different um, provisions, and mostly when it doesn't deviate from the constitution. Mm-hmm. So they fa- they failed to. ensure that the constitution didn't have an abortion provision mm-hmm. but they have worked very hard in making sure that no other law can have one yeah. such that the constitutional provision remains quite illusory mm-hmm. because now you can't actually implement it without legislative yeah. framework to yeah. support it thank you i think the more i have conversations with people who work in these spaces the more i I learn about how complex the issues and the problems relating to reproductive health and rights are um and it does need a lot of input from various sectors and people to come together and essentially challenge misinformation disinformation but also just outright um attacks by anti-feminist or anti-gender groups which have no basis but which eventually have a very negative bearing on the work that that's done to advance reproductive health and rights um and so one of the things that you keep speaking about whether we're talking about pan-africanism or whether we're talking about um gender transformation in healthcare is that we need a female voice we need women who've had experiences coming in and saying xyz is happening um xyz approaches would be better in countering some of the challenges and this brings me to the issue of reclamation um specifically reclamation through the use of new media so arts music um and just having women come in and speak openly about um their sexuality and being very open about some reproductive choices which are not which are not very traditional um so there are spaces for instance TikTok where women will speak very openly about their decisions to not have children and they do have personal choices but you find a lot of people countering them um and so do you think this is a good way of women sort of sparking the conversation towards taking back their rights do you think having artists such as Megan Thee Stallion come up with um music such as Captain Hook and speaking very openly about the fact that they're in charge of their reproductive health um the fact that they're very open about re- um various non-traditional um sexual identities such as bisexuality do you think there is a place for this sort of feminist reclamation and if so what role do you think they can play um to support now traditional advocacy methodologies yeah all right um so one of my former teachers always used to tell me For as long as patriarchy has existed which is for a very long time women have had to organize mm-hmm. to survive it because otherwise I feel like there'd be no world because yeah. we'd have just died yeah. at some point. 
would have died from the oppression and just stopped. And that's the thing. So women have always organized in different ways. And so reclamation of spaces is a consistent thing. Yeah. It's just evolving depending on the generation of women. Mm-hmm. So like it's something that you might not even understand very well when you're younger when you see why your mother is always in a chama. Yeah, yeah. Or your mother is always in a chama. And in that chama it doesn't necessarily seem like to you they do mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. But it's actually their space. Yeah. It's their space to be, it's their space to have power, it's their space not to be interfered with. Mhm. And they'll hold on to it. Yeah. Like they'll hold on to it jealously because that is their space. Because in so many different spaces, they don't have these opportunities to actually have power over their thoughts, over their words, mm-hmm. over their expressions because they're always being controlled and policed. And another illustration, and this is actually one of my colleagues told me about how when you go for a wedding and it's time to cut cake. Yeah. And they always give that role to a woman. Yeah. But... Do you see how it always becomes like a dramatic speech? It always. And in your mind it's tiresome. Yeah. But the reality is women have very little power in the entire process of mm. making of taking and making these decisions more because they don't actually have access to the capital to push the conversation. Yeah. When you're not like you don't have access to the capital, you're not paying for the things. So the people who pay for the things are going to bulldoze it. Yeah. So then this is your chance. Mm-hmm. So you will take that moment and you will give a dramatic speech because when will you be allowed to do so again? Mm-hmm. So reclaiming spaces is one of the fundamentals of capitalism and not just reclaiming them but creating safe spaces. And I think for now younger generations with access to social media we're able to do so in a much larger scale. Yeah. Then maybe our mothers and our grandmothers in a much larger scale were able to reach more people mm-hmm. and in a sense in doing so we also open ourselves up to a lot more backlash yeah but i do believe it's a worthwhile thing to continue to do because the solidarity and the need for creating those spaces regardless because even with the chamas this backlash yeah it's just women's idol chit chat times even with the cake cutting there's backlash why must this woman be this way mm-hmm. so there'll always be backlash to women trying to create these spaces but the spaces must be created because where we are in the world patriarchy still exists it might it might manifest terribly into misogyny and violence yeah. it might just be aggressions and microaggressions that keep you out of spaces mm-hmm. but then being able to create your own space and in that space speak your truth consistently that's what this is so even in art and music it's necessary so meg mm. the stallion isn't even the first artist yeah <laughs> to be as explicit as she's been yeah about women's sexual rights um i can think of lil kim mm-hmm. before her who was even more explicit <laughs> than she is but the idea was in a lot of time in a lot of music women have always just been commodities in the background yeah the video vixens the people dancing holding the banners holding the banners dancing looking cute not really engaged with mm. so when they have the opportunity you pull it in and you take that chance not just to speak of yours not just to speak but then to lean into your womanhood mm-hmm. which is basically what they're doing So I'm not just going to rap but I'm going to lean into my womanhood and I'm going to put it in your face because 
I have fought for this space. Yeah. So I use it in the same way that you do. Mm-hmm. And you will just have to accept it. And there's also a lot of backlash for that. Yes. Not mm-hmm. for men when they do similar things. Mm-hmm. Not for men when they have like 10 to 15 half-naked women around them mm-hmm. with no specific role other than being a prop. Mm-hmm. But wait, a woman has a single song called WAP and it is being discussed in It Congress. Like fire, yeah. <laughs> It's being discussed in Congress. Yeah. Well, even in that video, it really was just the two of them mm-hmm. for most of the video and other women. Yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm. thank, you, thank you for that. <laughs> I feel like I'm cutting the conversation. No, no, too. no, no I will have another interview specifically talking about music as a tool, not only for advancing SRHR, but also advancing political ideologies mm-hmm. and how women are able to use those spaces. Maybe we can invite you for that one okay. too if you're available. <laughs> but um, I, I do like the facts. I do like the way you've broken it down. Um, this conversation is also becoming a space where I'm getting to learn a lot as a young feminist. Um, but maybe we can move forward um, as we wrap up the conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, this year's theme of International Women's Day will be driven by the hashtag Break the Bias. And so um, could you maybe tell us one or two biases that you feel or that you find continue to draw women women back in the fight for um, empowerment? Um, and also, what do you think are some of the achievements that feminist and gender-right advocates have realized maybe in the past year, two or three years? Um, relating to breaking the bias. <laughs> so one I would say is the bias around competence. Mm-hmm. So there is a bias against women when it comes to competence and this bias is driven by the static thinking that one man are rational, women are emotional. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's work that requires rationality Mm-hmm. that we are not competent competent enough to do because we are emotional beings. Mm-hmm. And one I I one I don't think it's true. I I know so many rational men. Yeah. So I <laughs> I, I don't think it's a sex issue whether you're rational okay. or emotional and I don't think any person is either or. Mm-hmm. I think we're all on a spectrum just depending on the day. Yeah. You might be more rational, you might be more emotional depending on what's happening in your life at any given time. Yeah. And Emotion is by itself not a weakness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's like a part of human nature. So like any other part of human nature can be exploited and utilized for good things. And it can also be bad, yeah. similar to rationality. Then um, the other thing that I think that continues against women is this bias that women hate women. Oh. Um, this perception that women hate women rather. Mm-hmm. And... One, it's not true. I don't think they do. And also, like, the reality is, I have to go back to this, ignoring the chamas. Yeah. Whenever there's a loss in a home mm-hmm. and you go to see where the woman is sitting, she's normally surrounded mm-hmm. by other women. Yeah. It's usually other women who would drop their full day mm-hmm. and go to yeah. cook, to clean to make sure this family is fine, to make sure this woman is fine as mm. she's going through this grief. So women don't hate other women. I think the reality is women, like men, are subject to patriarchy and mm. women are often foot soldiers for patriarchy. So when you say, well, 
you guys are 50% of the population why don't you have a woman president and it's like um they are also being socialized to believe that men are better at this role mm. the same way you think it yeah they've been socialized to think it so it's nothing unique yeah they've been socialized to think the same thing you think so obviously they might go that route but it's mostly because they're foot soldiers for patriarchy mm. not because there's any like natural disdain that women hate women women don't support women that's actually very untrue mm. um in terms of achievements i think there've been so many one of the things that i think has been very influential in the last three years is being able to divorce mm. womanhood from race and then being able to focus on the woman's experience um so i think this is an american thing but we've seen it growing across the continent because we had the say her name campaign yeah which was fronted by um the african american policy forum and kimberly crenshaw but the idea that there are experiences that are unique to black Lovely. men when they're actually being suffered in the same way by black women mm-hmm. but black women are always expected to forget and support yeah So then in the last 3 years I have seen a growth especially from young feminists of being able to say no I'm not going to support your cause yeah. when I'm here being killed mm-hmm. and you guys do nothing So I think that I've seen and then also just a lot of a lot of political commitment somewhat political commitment towards mm-hmm. causes yeah. that women have advanced like on reproductive health and rights with mm-hmm. the ICPD summit in 2019 yeah. so we're seeing firmer and firmer commitments coming out from the government and then a lot of advocacy towards those commitments being realized yeah. um for instance in Kenya We're supposed to end FGM by this year. Mm-hmm. Excited to see what will happen at the end of this year. But then we have a full year to keep pushing at the government yeah. to deal with this ongoing problem. I feel like I've been able to learn and grow so much. And there are so many other young people who want to come into the same space to learn and grow and also create impact. So what influences would you tell them they can um, look up to and what resources do you feel they can tap into in their journey? And also, can you tell us where we can find them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so one, I would say people really underestimate her, Professor Wangari Madai. Most people think about her as an environmentalist only which she was but not only an environmentalist she was a feminist and mm-hmm. one of her causes was the environment but that was by no means what defined her mm-hmm. i mean her interaction with the political space was really as a woman trying to enter into political space and fight the political battle of being a woman in the space and more so than somebody who wanted to keep parks open. Yeah. So that's one person and she does have an autobiography. I mean obviously with life and the battering from patriarchy people at some point get tired so in her later life mm-hmm. when she was in state she wasn't quite as vocal and as prominent but her life and her history her autobiography really do show a very powerful feminist. Um Another person is Professor Sylvia Tamale and she actually does have a book on African feminisms mm-hmm. um that was published in 2021 or 2020 if I'm not wrong. It's available as an e-book. Mm-hmm. Um she's a Ugandan feminist. She is intriguing to see the list but she's also <laughs> She's intriguing to see the list but she 
also as because she's a lawyer as well mm. has specific tools that she's developed in terms of understanding mm-hmm. women's interaction with different systems and that's another thing how women interact with different systems mm-hmm. and then how because the systems aren't made for them yeah. so being able to unearth how these systems are problematic and what would need to change within them so she's able to articulate that quite well there's someone who you can find on social media her name is Rosebell mm-hmm. Kagumire also Ugandan so she is feminist activist everything and she she is he not hilarious but she is because you get her things in snippets uh she's also an editor so she edited the book that i mentioned on challenging patriarchy but beyond that she really does use the social media space mm-hmm. to advance her feminist ideals and she's somebody that i would say you can look up to in terms of just understanding things in snippets and being able to connect mm-hmm. so she's able to easily connect between um not just the feminist struggle but the global struggle of africanness and how this connect with eurocentric views and eurocentric and euro eurocentric power mm. and then being able to see africa's role in the world so she's really wonderful at that Um so those are the three people I would pick to write now there are so many in my mind yeah. but those are the three I would suggest Thank you I think they are a good start uh for the youngins kindly check them out um and then tell us what is your current favorite book or film something that you think we can catch up on when we are relaxing Okay so my current favorite book it's been my favorite book for a while mm-hmm. It's A Thousand Splendid Sons by Khalid Hosseini because it's essentially a love story between a mother and a daughter. Mm. Yeah, I know it's <laughs> it's very sweet mm. and very heartbreaking. <laughs> and it's set in Iran. Uh or Afghanistan, I'm not sure which of the countries, but it's set in pre-war Afghanistan and then the war mm-hmm. but then what then develops from that and my favorite line from that book is really from the mother of one of the main protagonists where mm-hmm. she says um cuz now her daughter's name is Maryam yeah so she says she tells her daughter Maryam always remember this like a compass always points north mm-hmm. a man's accusing finger always finds a woman wow it's very powerful interesting um thank you very much for taking your time to be with us nerima i feel like the conversation has been a rich one i have learned a lot in the process um really appreciate you taking your time to be with us and maybe as we close out you can tell the audience where they can find you probably on social media where can they connect with you Alrighty. Um thank you for having me Kate to begin with and thank you for this really nice conversation. It's a nice way to start the week and I've enjoyed it. Um on social media, um my Twitter is @nimoere n e m o w e r e. My Instagram is @nimo n e m o @akinyi and my Facebook is @nerimaere. So you can find me on all these different platforms. I really look forward to connecting with any of you and please reach out. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Upahamu Africa. You can find more episodes, show notes and transcripts on our website upahamuafrica.com. 
This podcast is produced and managed by Megan DeMint, with help from production assistants Jack Kubinek, Chukwu Fanaya Ikechukwu, and Manuel Topet. Our non-resident podcast fellows are Chidu Nyaruwata, Wanjiko Ngugi, Sama Fazi, Gretchen Walt, and Soinato Lebo. We are generously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and receive research assistance from Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Our music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Until next week, Safiri Salama, 